All right, everybody, welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm your host, John O'Fru, and this morning on this beautiful, sunny, gorgeous winter's morning up in Waitaki, or in the beautiful Otago, I'm joined with Brad Rudd, the manager of Motor Tapu Station in Central Otago. Good morning, Brad. G'day, John. How are you going? Good, mate. Good. We've both got a bit of sun on the back, which is a yeah. positive. Brad, what's getting you sprung out of bed in the morning? What's what's really exciting you with what you're doing at the moment? Quite lucky at the moment. Um, to yes, yeah, so I'm at Motobi Station, but working um, for Royal Burn Station, and I'm quite lucky to be uh, working for them because I've just got this amazing free reign to try whatever I want. Really, I mean, everything's got to make financial financial sense. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, just really good support around um, trying new things, which is pretty refreshing. Yeah, so that's pretty cool to be a part of. That is fantastic. And like how many farms in New Zealand, and I would say around the world, but I don't know that for sure, are limited by fear around trying new things. It's incredible to be able to have that scope. So Brad, can you tell us a bit about Mototapu, um, about the farm and a bit about yourself, please, for the listeners? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, yeah, so Mototapu, we um, graze, uh, yeah, we lease graze it. Um, it's the uh, breeding component of, of Royal Burn um, because they sort of outgrew the ability to run use there. And it's also a little bit of a waste to use um, Royal Burn as a breeding property because it's, you know, such beautiful finishing and cropping sort of land. Um, so, yeah, at, at the peak of sort of summer, we've probably got about 2,000 hectares here to, to play with. Um, but a lot of that is pretty uh sort of fred well fragile alpine sort of country so it's not yeah not overly productive um and then in winter we sort of come right back to sort of around 500 hectares or something most of it the, the farm itself is actually 53,000 hectares the land holding but um 95 of it's retired so into qe2 covenant so um yeah it's quite it is quite challenging because those 2000 hectares are sort of spread across this massive chunk of land so um you know it can it takes sort of days of planning to get stock from the front to the back of the farm um and even though i'm in wanaka here at the back of the farm it actually bounds with Royal which is on the crown terrace so um yeah it just sort of shows you the scope of the place so to get stock from I suppose depending on where they are at Mototapu to Royal Burn, is that a truck job or is it? Yeah, I mean we do we we do bound, um, but we we truck everything because it's sort of a mountain boundary really. Um, the only other way would be um, probably to take, which they, I'm sure they used to do back in the day, um, take stock down through like the Mace Town track to Arrowtown and then up the roadway, <laughs> which would be quite cool, I suppose, but. I don't know if I'd want that headache in this day and age. <laughs> I'm kind of feeling like a like a an old Yellowstone journey, you know, wagon yeah. carts and, and and cowboys and rifles, or maybe not, you know, to the today. <laughs> Brad, um, before we go into more detail about the farm, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, who uh, is Brad? Rudd? Yeah, so I well, I'm 28. Um, I grew up in Auckland. Um, sort of not not off a farm but not sort of from right in town or anything but um yeah so went to school and everything in Auckland um and then just just sort of always had a bit of a 
desire to grow things basically um i remember sort of back in the day with my popper in his veggie garden just being infatuated by the fact you know you could put a seed or a seedling in the ground and then a month or two later you know you've, you've got food and he was very um didn't use any sort of i mean he wasn't vocally you know organic or anything like that but he just sort of didn't use anything apart from compost really yeah i remember that feeling just of being just like grabbing tomatoes and stuff with them just being that really exciting me i don't yeah i can't remember sort of much apart from just feeling that excitement about pulling a tomato off a vine um and yeah so anyway so um yeah a few years down the track and then uh getting to the end of high school and i decided to go to lincoln um but i actually studied viticulture and enology i just thought i was initially planning on going down there to sort of do a dip ag or something but I just sort of thought, you know, I knew I was going to get into farming and shepherding. And I thought if I, um, if I study viticulture and enology, I mean, that's something that I'm never going to learn again. And I was sort of aware that in this day and age and in, um, in the primary industry, you've got to diversify. Um, so I sort of, yeah, so my major was yeah, viticulture and enology, but I did do a lot of agriculture and horticultural papers as well. Um, finished off down there, I think in about 2016, 17 or something. And then we uh, sort of did a little bit of travel and stuff and then headed down to Central Hawke's Bay and went shepherding down there for sort of four years or something. Um, yeah, which on a really, yeah, on a great farm. It was, um, yeah, Ryan, the manager, he's a, a lifelong mate now because um, he sort of took a chance on me when I didn't have any. I, well, I brought a heading dog. That's all I had, really. So, I mean, I had a good idea of, you know, what happened, but I still had a hell of a lot to learn. Um, and they were it was sort of a semi-corporate company, family-owned, but semi-corporate. But, I mean, it was they were really good to work for because everything was done properly. All of the facilities were great and everything. Um, but I sort of just came to a point after I'd learned all the basics where I was starting to just ask sort of questions like, you know, what if we did it this way? What if we did it that way kind of thing? I mean, not that anything was wrong with how they're doing it, but it was just a relatively conventional, you know, farm. And, and a, you know, great production. Ryan's a great farmer and everything. Um, and nothing was wrong, so to speak, but I was just, I guess, getting to the point where I wanted to try different things and just have a bit more of that um, preventative sort of, you know, doing ambulance at the top of the cliff sort of, you know trying new things rather than just treating your all your issues was of interest to me um and anyway so i was just looking on uh on trade me and saw the job listed for here with Robin. so um yeah i didn't actually think i was going to get it because it was a manager's role and i was sort of just going from a senior shepherd's role um yeah and it just all worked fit in really well time-wise and yeah so and i'd all i always wanted to try central otago the south island kind of thing so um it was just the natural next step for me really yeah and how on earth like you said you started to question the uh <clears throat> i guess the status quo yeah would be the right thing to call it yeah. um and you were seeing opportunities to start preventing things rather than treating the symptom that's not 
I would have thought something of a fella of your age at that time would be on the front of mind. How did that start, that way of thinking? Were you naturally curious and, and sort of a, a thinker around the why? Or, or tell me about how that sort of started to surface in your mind, those questions. Yeah, I actually, I sort of asked myself the same question because it's not like I had, I mean, I'd done a lot of reading and listening and stuff to more regenerative sort of ways of farming and that but I wasn't I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge or any well I still don't have a whole lot of knowledge really but um I, I it was just natural I suppose I just start, started sort of thinking you know um well my sort of probably yeah my two big interests would be um would be you know genetics and animals so trying to just breed into and breed resilience into the animals I mean to me that's the way we get out of this um, drench crisis we're in really is to breed that resilience but then obviously also um, to actually give the animals what they need you know um, you know whenever I talk to people now about it it's you know you I refer to a ryegrass clover paddock as you know us eat, only eating bread you know for the rest of our life like yeah we'll survive we'll get fat or whatever but we're not going to thrive um, and I mean, to be honest with you, those it just made sense in my head to be giving your animals variety, um, whether that be in, in in what they're eating or in some sort of supplementation. Um, so I did try, sort of, I yeah, I tried talking in that last job about some sort of supplementation of minerals and that kind of thing, um, which you know, they weren't uninterested, yeah, they weren't uninterested in, but um, but it's just because it was sort of run so conventionally, every dollar has to count. And, you know, if you can't put, a, you can't put a value on what you're getting out of, so to speak, on a balance sheet out of that mineral lick or increasing the species in your sword or whatever, whatever um, yeah, it just, I wasn't I wasn't going to get that there I wasn't going to be able to achieve try those different things there yeah and it's such a great point because a lot of the metrics we're used to using actually don't fit a lot of this different sort of stuff because it's not like a plus b equals c you know and and so how do you get around that now is it are you able to use with Rawburn and your current role is there different language involved or is it more sort of um, conversational or is it still very much on the paper, black and white figures? Um, how does it work? No, yeah, I, I, that's something I, re I still struggle with a lot and I continue to try and learn more every day is actually trying to quantify this way of farming. Um, because, I mean, the entire primary industry well, you know primary industry in New Zealand has been all the metrics we use and everything have been set up around you know conventional and numbers on paper and I mean don't get me wrong I mean if you're wanting to farm that way it all works quite well and the ability to to forecast and budget and you know usually it turns out relatively you know not too far off what you've um what figure you forecast but I am struggling with that here um but again I'm lucky with um, with Royal Burn and that there's a little bit more flexibility there. Um, we can, I don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be black and white. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you um, mentioned that about minerals, Brad, because um, here we were just having a discussion um, at our place about 
minerals and we're going through a lot and we're putting a lot out and we're doing salt licks with kelp and we're doing um you know mineral um loose lick blends and you know we're just emptying pellet after pellet after yeah. pellet at night and um you know the question comes to mind i had the discussion with our with our partners our equity partners um about you know what's the what's the sort of uh the 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 logic are we do we just keep giving it to them and um and our business partner said uh it was said really well and it was, wasn't something i'd really thought about before was like um you know, we know that if we're given minerals, the animal's only going to take in a very small percentage of those minerals. And then, funnily enough, a lot of the minerals that um, the animals need are minerals that are lacking on the farm, like sodium, selenium. And, okay, what the animal doesn't use ends up going on the ground. And yeah. it was just like a little change in perception or point of view all of a sudden went from being like a low-efficiency um practice to actually a practice with multiple outcomes that are measurable in you know in the traditional metrics but just with a different switch you know a different swing on the delivery of the i guess of the of the proposed you know plan it's like ah that makes sense yeah and i mean i sort of i basically am looking at exactly the same um well sort of two things there um i think once i mean if you can get your farm to a point uh where you've got a beautiful range of species across your entire farm they're all doing their thing they're all tapping into minerals deep down and bringing up what the animals need but i don't think anyone in new zealand's got that got their entire farm covered and those <laughs> those uh, plant species doing all the different parts so for me mineral supplementation is extremely important and even more so here um, this place is very very low in basically everything um, and it's far cheaper and far more efficient to give the animals what they need directly than try and spread that over 2000 hectares all in one year sort of thing. So well, and, the, no and the, and the, the, the animals are doing that spreading for you. Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 For sure. <laughs> so Brad, um, how long ago was it that you started at Mototapu? Basically a year more or less in the, well, in the next couple of weeks. So um, yeah, so it, it has gone fast, but it also does feel like I've probably been here longer because I've, sort of had a lot of challenges um, in a short period of time. Everything from the stock when they arrived, or the, the ewes when they arrived, they um, they were all lambing too early for this country, like quite a, quite, quite a lot too early. Um, so there was that, they're all different wool lengths and everything. So I've just had, and different breeds and everything. So it was quite a lot. On top of the fact when I came here, there was basically no um, mapping of the farm. So I had to map a lot of the, well, I had to run around and basically on my phone, found a great app and mapped the farm about oh, a couple of hundred paddocks. Um, had to get that done before set stocking so I could do my numbers for lambing. Um, so yes, yeah, so that was, I, I've had a lot, of, a lot of challenges in the time, but I've just, this year I've decided to put the ram out extremely late because this valley is notoriously cold and deep very deep narrow valley shaded and um it just takes forever to warm up at the other end of winter or in spring 
so I've decided the ram only went out on the, the start of June, so won't be lambing until November. So I think that's far more suitable to this to this country. Yeah. Did you lose lambs that were cut, that were lambing early? Was like was it that cold that you were losing lambs, or it wasn't so much that it was just more the poor ewes just it just wasn't growing underneath them, you know. Um, I mean, they came out the other end, but it was it wasn't. I didn't want to repeat it there. I mean, it wasn't terrible. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we got through, but I just don't, there's no, we don't need to lamb that early, you know? Um, so with Royal Burn, all of the offspring, all of the lambs I produce by my replacements get sent over to Royal Burn to be finished. And then they're all killed on site because they've got an abattoir and butchery over there. Um, and so they need their supply year round. So I don't, I don't need to have, you know, thousands of lambs, on the truck before Christmas or anything like that. So um, I just thought, yeah, let's um, let's lamb when the grass is growing. It means I can use a lot more of the farm for it. Um, yeah, so fingers crossed that that plan works this year. I'm sure it will. <laughs> what about ram selection, Brad? What have you, um, like as far as genetics, what's exciting you? Royal Burnt had been, well, are using, we are using our focus genetics terminal rams. So they're obviously selected for their um, meat eating quality. But maternal wise, uh, I am going down the Perindale, um route, sticking to sort of the original, like for years, Royal Burn was a Perindale uh, farm. When we came to Motutapu, they brought a couple of thousand Romney Texels from the previous um, tenants here, um, which have been really good use. I quite, I, I quite like the Romney Texel, but um, I'm just going to go down, just try and get everything back to Perindale. So, yeah, I brought um, some really good uh, Perindale rams last year, well, for this year, um, that... Uh, with a big focus on worm resilience that's one of my well I mean good confirmation and everything but worm resilience is the direction I really want to go I mean looking around here um, the previous people obviously used a lot of capsules there's capsules being coughed up left right and center and I've sort of come from the school of not doing any drenching your use at all apart from maybe the tail end so um, yeah so that's a challenge because yeah who knows who knows what's in the ground who knows the worm burden here but um yeah so hopefully that those Perindale rams will give us those that resilience that i want in our in our um future future replacement ewe lambs yeah we use mm. nice one brad and what about um like on the topic of of uh worm treatments or or you know parasite treatments do you have sort of a what's your sort of thoughts around well how do you approach it is, is it case by case are you blanket drenching what's your so my one of the going back to sort of why I wanted to come down here I've always just had in my head that farming and of like I've, I'd always lived and then farmed in in um in the North Island where the ground didn't freeze in the winter and the grass grew year round and I sort of just always had in my head like it must be a really healthy thing for the ground to freeze over winter, you know, as a re mother nature's reset sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's why I wanted to try farming down here. And I think there's something to be said about that for sure. 
Um, yeah, but um, my approach to drenching is I don't drench use. I mean, unless they absolutely have to be, but if that's the case, I'd probably drench them and get rid of them. Um, and lamb wise, I'm quite a big, yeah, quite a big believer in uh, no drenching until weaning, because I just think if you give them a drench, I mean, this is just my, I'm no scientist, this is just my take. Um, if I just think if you drench them at that sort of um, mid pet point between lambing and weaning, uh, between tailing and weaning, um, I just think you're taking away that, you know, the rumen's natural ability to fight those worms. Um, and I feel like that's probably quite a crucial period for having a bit of worm exposure and developing, you know, your own natural resilience. Um, so that's what I did this year and that all worked out well. Great. Um, I probably, I drenched at weaning and then once more before I, as sort of a quarantine exit drench before going to Royal Burn. So, um, so that, you know, that's compared to what I was used to. We were, I was used to drenching every 28 days for their first five, six, seven drenches. So um, I take that as a bit of a win for sure. <laughs> Do you have any, have any lambs you're running last season? Uh, what did I have here? I had um, about 4,000 lambs or something. Yeah, so yeah. 4,000 lambs being saved, what, five or six drenches? Oh, I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, like I used to go to the vets and pick up the drench in the last job and you'd sometimes you'd have 40 grand's worth of drench in your backseat <laughs> if you were drenching them with Stardeck or something, you know, like, just unbelievable. So, um, yeah, just much, would much rather put that, uh, put that money, I mean, not that it will be that much anyway, but put, um, put that money into mineral supplementation at the, at the start get them to fight themselves i mean surely that's the way to go <laughs> oh brad i love it mate and like you must have been like i i just have put myself in your shoes mentally for a second young fella new kid on the block uh talking about ideas like this have, have you ever been sort of approached and questioned about something like that and had yourself sort of experience something like self-doubt or anything like that oh definitely yeah yeah i mean like i've got heaps of mates that farm conventionally and everything and i'm sort of like knowing a little bit is like well a bit of a hippie, a hippie i suppose and the thing is i'm not at all like i'm the furthest thing from a hippie you'd ever bloody yeah but um but just one, I do laugh a little bit because, you know, over the years, you know, I'll suggest sort of maybe, oh, maybe you could try this, maybe you could try that. And, you know, it's always just tongue in cheek kind of thing, but it's, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, they sort of <laughs> take the piss out of me back kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I just, and I was like, oh, it's fine. like, you know, at the end of the day, like a lot of these people, are, you know, they have to farm that way because um, they've got, you know, money owing on the place. The bank requires a certain amount of, bloody fit put on each year and this kind of thing and if they start talking about these wayward well supposedly wayward ideas i mean you know you just it's just too much of a risk for them and it's and it's working you know it is working but the way i see it is what you know what further what increased production could you get or um or you know your decrease in your cost of production could you have from just trying these a few different things or yeah um I mean, that is the way I see it personally. I think I think either 
I mean, not everyone can go down the route of what Carlos and Nadia have done at Rawburn and um, add their own value to their to their um, produce. So if you're going to continue in a commodity market, then you've got to reduce your costs of production. And I think the way to do that is by trying to farm more regeneratively and not just continuing to be a slave to the primary services and products industry that's developed in New Zealand to just treat, treat, treat at the bottom end. But it's a scary, it's, uh, I'm lucky to be able to do it, not on my own money, but it's, it would be a seriously scary thing for someone to completely change the way they've been doing things. Um, sure, yeah. And something like worm resistance, it's its not, well, it can be at times, it might surprise you. It might be a one season wonder where it's like you start them off well, they're getting the nourishment from mum. Because you said it, you touched on something before that that really, um, you know, the idea of drenching a lamb while it's still drinking from mum, it makes you wonder, does it undo a lot of the goodness that it's getting from mum? Um, was one thought that came to my mind. But then just on to this next point was, um, you know, these things aren't always a results um, in the same season phenomenon. You know, like it's sometimes it's a, you might see it the next season or the season, or, you know, one day you might just realise, oh my goodness, I don't need to drench um, for that second time or, you know, something like that. It's, it's not like you can just say, right, that's done. This is that. Um, yeah. Here's the outcome in the one season. Yeah, and I mean, fecal, obviously fecal egg counting is another great tool to use um, because I'm sure there was plenty of times that if someone had effect, um, they, the you know, the, the egg counts would have just been at a nice little region. I mean, they don't need to be zero, just been in a nice region where there's enough, you know, enough to put a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a uh, pressure on the, on the lamb, but enough to keep it doing what it's meant to do. I mean, I always just think to myself, imagine if we woke up every morning and took antibiotics and, you know, all these drugs just to keep us going. I mean, I know it's, I know I'm not, I shouldn't be comparing drenched antibiotics, but I'm just trying to compare it to a human um, situation. It just seems bizarre to just keep shoving this thing down their throat to keep yeah. them alive. Yeah. Well, look, mate, if, if, a, if a substance kills um, parasites, you can guarantee it's a it's a biocide as well you know it's going yeah. to be an antibiotic yeah i mean it, it is why wouldn't you compare the two yeah it does seem strange to 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 be giving a medication to keep something alive every 28 days it does seem mm. strange yeah you, you said to earlier brad you if you've got to treat a you you will and yeah. then you'll put it on the truck is that just to keep that kind of susceptibility out of the breeding mob oh for sure i mean i mean i i I mean unless you end up having a really bad year and you end up drenching you know half your flock or something which touch wood that doesn't happen but um probably the only thing i would say is i mean i'm being very general in what i'm saying here i mean up in the north island there's barber's pole issues well i think probably top of the south island too i'm not sure but um Barber's pole issue where you sort of, you have to drench for that. But there's no way around that. But apart from in the future, breeding for those better genetics and for the worm resilience, it's just 
so important. I mean, you just, you, I mean, you're not even, you're not even allowed. I don't know if you've seen about those capsules. Um, they've been banned at the moment. You're not even allowed to use them. Yeah. Because I mean, they all, they all get used wrong. They've got a tail off period. Because obviously you've just got this slow release enthalmintic ha happening in the rumen. But um, they've have a tail off period, obviously, where there's just a little bit at the end. And then that's just the prime period for your worms to become resilient to, to what's being released, you know? So. And then, then they should give them the top up. Should have been done years ago. Yeah, makes total sense. Because a lot of barbers pole drenches, are, well, claimed drenches are actually waning from what I've seen. Like there's a lot of, they're, they're building resilient, uh, that's the right word, they're building resilience to our drenches um, very, very quickly, the, these parasites. Um, and I remembered what I, my, uh, John, the comedian, uh, you said before about, you know, go and get fecked. And I just thought I'd never said, never thought about that before. Just go and <laughs> go and get fit. I've never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. Um, Are you doing your own fecal week counts, Brad, or are you sending them away to the vets? Uh, so uh, over at Rawburn, they do have a fit pack that they do their own, but I've just been getting them done at the vets. Um, well, I've actually Amanda has taken tests back over to Rawburn to do them, but. Um, yeah, I haven't really needed them to to be honest. I mean, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't had issues. So, so if they're not presenting, you won't yeah. we can't sort of thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's always the, the thing. I mean, it's not just you know scours that mean you know scours don't always mean worms, and you can have a really wormy sheep that's got a beautiful, um, <laughs> beautiful back end. But um, but um, yeah, I mean, you can tell if you if your lambs are doing. You can tell. I mean, they're round gutted and getting bigger by the day and clean. Um, but yeah, no. But I have, but I have fecked anyway, just to make sure, just to keep track of where they're at. Um, yeah, but I've been very, very pleasantly surprised at how little I've had to had to drench. So it's great. Have you ever seen any kind of anomalies in, let's say, you've tested and it's been high, but the animals are pumping? Have you yep. ever found that? Yep. yep. I found that too. And I haven't actually found anyone else that's shared the same experience. So you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this year I fecked all the ewes because I did have quite a tail in them. And I fecked one of the mobs just, just because even though the mob was all, you know, every every ewe looked great. And they were about 650, which is quite, I mean, 500 is the catalyst to drench. So, I mean, it could have just been a couple of, a couple of um you know tail use within them who knows but i was i was pretty shocked at that mm. and i didn't obviously didn't, didn't drench them so and they're looking great out on the hill now so i'm not sure what that was about obviously they've just got that resilience to fight that worm population well this is it man like i, I was getting 900s oh really yeah, yeah yeah and and i was looking at these lambs and you know these are wiltshire store lambs from the up on the um up in the sounds and um and i trusted my gut and it was difficult because no one had ever done that on this farm before it was like figure weekend of 900 you like the and the vets because they did the tests were like you know and here's what we recommend here and i'm like i'm just gonna leave it to you know, i'm just gonna leave it that they are looking fantastic they're on a great diet 
Um, I was throwing Hugh mates out to them and it paid off. But it was scary because it's like 900, alert, mm. alert. And we know how quickly a lamb can fall apart. So it is quite scary to make that decision, I suppose. <laughs> oh, and the most, that wouldn't actually this farm, it wasn't, but for most farms, that is the biggest income is those lambs and you've got to get them gone quick. Yeah. And um, this is the thing is I was getting them gone quick. They were pumping and, and you know, it wasn't, I wasn't going to test and it was the landowner's request. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And, um, and, you know, came back with this test, but like, like you, I had that scope, thank goodness. And, um, and thank goodness it paid off too. But I, to this day, I've never actually met anyone else that's experienced that. So I'm really glad there's someone else. So, yeah, yeah. I was really shocked. I mean, I was expecting them to come back close to nothing, really. So that was, yeah, it was a big shock. <laughs> if, if you're running sort of 2,000 effective heat deers um, in, the, in the summer and down to 500 in the winter, are you running this place on your own, Brad? Or have you got people helping you out? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so, I mean, I'm the only one that does all the dog work and everything. Um, but just, I've had my mate here uh, on and off over summer and then just now getting the use all ready for the ram, um, just as a hand in the yards and everything. Um, and then Amanda from Rawburn, she comes over every now and then just to give me a hand if I need someone else, yeah, yard work and everything. Um, but yeah, all the, I mean, there is only sort of, yeah, stock wise, it is yeah absolutely doable. Just with just with me and my dogs kind of thing. Um, probably the only thing I do find a challenge is that, that you know when I'm when when it's just you when when you're somewhere on the farm, nothing else is happening anywhere else kind of thing. And the farm I came from before here, you know, we sort of had ten of us there, so there was always always something happening. So the work certainly waits for you here, but. Um, yeah, out the way, it, it, it was quite a challenge over summer because it, um, when I had ewes right at the back of the farm, because it takes, it's an hour and a half, about an hour and 40 minutes just of driving to get to them. So, I mean, it's a three hour, three and a half hours a day of, of driving before you actually do any work. And I was yep. doing it every few days because the place is so subdivided. Um, so every day to every two days, I'd be driving right to the back of the farm because all my paddocks are sort of a couple of hectares, five hectares, those sorts of things. So, holy cow, man! I can't <laughs> a, a, a farmer's commute of an hour and a half to get to the paddock. Holy cow! Is that <laughs> gates galore, or is that just straight? No, nah, I am quite lucky. There's a central lane, so it's just driving. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's forty. I think it's forty-two k's. I think the farm, the track. Yeah. That is unbelievable, man. Yeah, and yeah. so there is a lot of inefficiencies with a, a, a farm shaped this size. Um, but look, hey, it's yeah. I mean, talking about out out the out the way in the summer sort of country. Um, you know, it was all to enable um, to enable retirement of a lot of that land. It was um, it was subdivided all the valley floor basically was subdivided into little paddocks and then developed and everything um one thing i will say is i mean i don't get me wrong i'm all for subdivision of of you know good fertile land but a lot of that land out there is above you know eight nine hundred meters and it's fragile alpine tussock land really and a mob of sheep just don't do well in a condensed in a small paddock of tussock basically i mean that that i that country out there just needs that is one 
that's one area of land that I don't think should be um, have high stock pressure. Personally, I think you just need spread out little, you know, put a mob of a thousand or something or a couple of thousand into a into a couple of thousand acre block of that kind of alpine country and they'll just mosey around. I think more than anything, it was the the grazing pressure and the hierarchy in the mob. And with there not being plentiful feed, it's more of a um, uh, more of a browsing sort of situation. It just they didn't do well out there at all. So that's a learning, yeah, for sure. Definitely, mm -hmm. it's um, yeah. You, you sort of talked about what a lot of this country around us is is like um just sort of summer country, or or you know you put them out there for they might be out. You might have six months rest or eight months rest, and then the rest of the time they've just got animals. Might might be good for calving or yeah, for um, sure. I mean, cows would be uh, cows do a lot better in that country than the sheep I've got. Cows and merinos would do better in that country that I've got. Um, but unfortunately, this is I'm not allowed cattle on this place, so um, that's a, been a really, really big learning curve because you know, um, contrary to what most of the world thinks, I mean, cattle are just the most amazing animal for pasture management and soil building soil and i mean they're just incredible you know a sheep just goes in there and grazes to the boards and moves on and depletes it as far as i can see yeah uh, i'm t i'm just withholding my desire to come in with a, some kind of sarcastic joke about them destroying the world but i i get you man like cattle are just incredible tools yeah. to be able to you know literally wake up areas like that which you describe oh, yeah i mean and that's i must say that's that's not a royal burn thing i mean we'd love to have cattle here that's an owner's choice so yeah uh, yeah but i mean the the i mean if i even 200 cow breeding cows here if i had 200 cows here i could i reckon i could transform this place you know it just the most magical animal the old cow wasn't she oh yeah <laughs> beautiful animals and um so coming back to rams going out, so they're going out soon. What's some of the things you do to prepare the ewes for, for the ram? Yep. So I got bloods taken this year because I wasn't overly happy with how the ewes were looking coming back from the summer country. Um, they were quite low in selenium, which is to be expected. Um, and But they were terribly, terribly low in iodine, which wasn't something I knew too much about. Um, so pre-tup uh, pre this year, I've given them a mineral, like a non-anthelmintic drench, a mineral, it's just selenium, iodine, cobalt, I think, um, drench. And I mix that with, I suppose it's off-label, so I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I mix that with agri-sea seaweed, so it's all natural anyway. Mm. Um, so they ended up with a 20 mil shot of that. Um, they got that and a shot, a long-acting um, injection of iodine. So hopefully that gets them going, um, gives them everything. I'm sure they will. I mean, that's, that's yeah, they've, if they don't do well off that, then there's something seriously wrong. So, um, and then on top of that, I give them um, all sorts of licks as well. So they've got salt, they've got a protein lick, and they've got a multi-mineral lick from all from the essential nutrition so i'm quite happy with their products so mm -hmm. um yeah so they everything it's, it's nice that everything there's nothing like seeing a mob of sheep that's been sorted and drafted and 
had everything it needs and is out on plenty of feed. So they'll be going on to um, crop soon. I've started one, the tail mob on crop. Um, yeah, so I'm just trying to, I'm just buffering. I'm just buffering the, the grass paddocks a little bit with some barley at the moment, um, just to try and keep them off that crop for a little bit longer. But to be honest with you, I've got plenty of crops. So that, they could be on it now, but I'm just conscious that the winters are so bloody long in this valley. So, um, yeah, so they're all they're all out though now. Yeah. And talk us through your crops, Brad. What what sort of crops are you growing? Yeah, so I mean the crops were all like so new to me. So yeah, the the hill country farm on the coast I'd come from in Central Hawks Bay was um grass, all grass only, um, no supplements, nothing fed. Um, and it grew all year round. So completely different down here, obviously. So that was a big good learning curve. Um, so I ended up, I needed a hundred hectares about of, of, of winter crop to put in. So what I actually did was, um, because cropping is so new to me and we don't know this farm or anything, I did end up going with 70% as conventional kale. Um, and I mean, that was just purely down to the fact that we needed guaranteed dry matter, really. Um, and, you know, PGG could basically guarantee that for us with using their um you know their protocol um and it's done you know done pretty well i definitely um i definitely uh played with what they want to do uh, to do a little bit sort of like halving the fur rates and that kind of thing like it just i just couldn't believe that we were you know the amount of dap and stuff that you usually would put on um so we did that and then 30 hectares of it was my regen winter mix so did 30 hectares of that and that's sort of a 10 10 to 12 different species in there i think um my thinking behind it was um obviously brassicas a brassica component um i'll, I'll tell you so i ended up putting uh Facelia mustard um sort of three or four different brassicas kale and turnips and uh, all sorts um and then on radishes there's a couple of other things but then also i put in chicory and oh, some clovers some chicory and some plantain so my thought was to get the plantain and chicory and clover growing in the spring to get a graze off that before it goes into winter crop again um <laughs> yeah learning curve every single radish seed germinated like i don't think it, i don't think there was one radish seed on on the property that didn't germinate um and because of that i think there was just a little bit of yeah they they just grew so quickly that a lot of the kale and the other brassicas didn't do so well um so next year i'll definitely well this year i'll definitely um reduce that um reduce the radish component mm. <laughs> but um i mean look i'm happy overall i probably only got about three sort of three tons of dry matter so i mean but look that's why i did the kale so as a backup and now you know next year i'd probably do i'd swap probably swap those um ratios around you know do 70 percent of the region and just 30 percent of the kale or something like that um but i definitely have identified issues that i think would have helped the whole situation um yeah a that yeah reducing the amount of radish in there 
but also I was sort of talked again like this this is the first time I've done this so I wasn't you know you get told so many different things um I um some of the seed was coated um so I think that may not have may not have helped the situation um and then also there was a degree of fur we put in as well um so I mean yeah I if I was doing it again I probably would have yeah no no coated seed definitely um and probably no synthetic fertilizer either yeah I just think because what happened was we sowed in late in December and then had basically nearly a drought down here and so considering that the weather conditions I've probably got quite a good crop really but I just think the from the um yeah the seed coatings and the synthetic fertilizer I just think my root systems were just shallower than what they would have been without um yeah I mean that's my my summary of what I think has happened but um look you've got to try these things eh? Mm. it's not that different to your notion about giving the lamb a chance to build its immunity before giving it a drench at weaning like it's um it's almost the exact same sort of concept you you just want your plants to because i was going to ask you the question like what are your thoughts on treated seed and what are your thoughts on synthetics down the spout but that sort of came to mind you've already addressed it um well you've already suggested the sort of concept with your lambs yeah for sure yeah um i mean my mind sort of went a little bit when i was planning to you know various people that sort of say don't you know don't your soil's like a um you know, like a drug addict, don't pull the synthetic fertilizer off it straight away. But I just don't think it was necessary, to be honest. I really don't. Um, but yeah, I would look. I'll never. Well, I suppose I don't know whether I'll ever know or not. But I think I think that those that seed, those coated seeds, would have played havoc. You can just see in it there was like a like an area around the treated plants, the kales and that that just well sort of almost dead if you know what I mean and then I know some of the seeds that were that were untreated there was a lot more going on around them I mean that's just an observation I've made I could be wrong but yeah yeah so no big learning um and I think either way I'm going to get really get the value of that variety um for the animals so I'll just use it as you know I'll use the kale paddocks as the dry matter, the gut fill paddocks, and I'll probably take them on and off the region paddocks to almost like give them their vitamins, so to speak. Yeah, almost like a like a hospital paddock. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then I, I guess if your if your idea of the spring growth with the clovers and chicory comes, you've got another unexpected element that you weren't going to get with your kale. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did put some moata in with the kale as a bit of a you know spring growth catch crappy sort of thing um but yeah i mean i i i thought the when we came in here we had uh crop left over from the previous people which was conventional brassicas with some moata underneath them and i saw that moata do really well in the spring so that's why i'm hoping uh, my um plantain chicory and clover will will do the same sort of thing i mean that could be I mean, that'd be some unreal, if it, if it works, it'll be some bloody unreal feed in spring um, mm. with those three things growing. So, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it all goes to plan. <laughs> and you haven't got um, animals on anything yet. You're just waiting 
Um, I did. I, I just, the uh, start of the week, I just, um, I had a couple of paddocks that I actually haven't included in my um, feed budget. And so they're just kind of little paddocks that I just threw, with the, I drilled some seed into just to play with sort of thing. Um, so I have started the tail mob on them because I thought they may, I've got that much crop. They may as well be um, eating as much as they want at this point while the ram's out. So um, yeah. Um, so they seem to be enjoying it though. For sure. And that's daily shifts. Is it Brad on the crop? You, you no, give... so no, it's not. It's we actually sort of try and do about four day sort of blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're giving that a go. So yeah, nice. Nice. And um are you have you got electricity on your fences out there or how does that work? Do you have to bring it to the paddock or yeah, no, I've just got um, individual solar units, basically. Um, yeah, the fences are uh, another massive, massive challenge here. They're sort of, it's had, it was all, the entire place was refenced in um, the mid-2000s, which just astronomical amount of fencing was done, but it was all sort of merino fencing, you know, um, seven wire with massive big spacings between waratahs and posts. So the old uh, crossbreds and that just walk straight through them like they're not even there. So that's can there's been a few few days where I've sort of had my head in the hands when you drive up the lane and there's hundreds of sheep on the lane, you don't know where they've come from. Oh god. <laughs> yeah. So but I've tagged I've tagged my maternals and terminals this year. So any that I find on the lane, I'll know where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> they um stop them teaching the bad habits to the next lot. Yeah, oh, it's just I've 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 sat there once and watched five ewes walk through uh three strain fences like they weren't even there unbelievable wow. eh? yeah little buggers <laughs> do you ever get yourself um because this sort of future or this life you've created brad was um it wasn't super predictable was it back in your sort of younger years like could you have could you have ever thought you know does it sometimes kind of surprise you that you're doing what you're doing oh it, it does for sure I mean as I said before um you know if I if it wasn't for Ryan my first boss at the last farm I was at I mean he as I said he sort of took a chance on me with <laughs> with not I mean a lot of knowledge don't get me wrong oh, you know a lot of I used to spend a bit of time down there because my um mate works worked for him and is lives next door to him um and I used to spend a bit of time with him before I worked there. And I think we used to talk about, cause he's quite passionate about um, drench resilience and that kind of thing as well. So um, we used to spend a lot, quite a bit of time talking about that. Um, so I guess that probably helps me in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could well have gone the completely opposite way and I just could never have got into it, I suppose, because I'm probably not the, I mean, I'm confident, but you know what I mean? Like it is, it's a very daunting industry to get into, especially as like what well, can be, it can be a very daunting industry to get into. Um, and the thing is, I understand, like I've got to even catch myself sometimes, like for me now, like rolling my eyes at someone that doesn't know what they're, you know, oh, bloody townie or whatever, but it's like, hang on, you were that. So God, don't be like that, geez. <laughs> so for yeah. anyone that's listening from, you know, maybe an urban upbringing or a city upbringing, like you would say, you know, like the totally a possibility of you getting into the agricultural industry. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd definitely say the best bet would be um, really as early as you can. I mean, unless you're wanting to go to uni or whatever, get in as early as you can. But I think a station environment is the best bet for a young guy or young male or female. <laughs> that's your best bet is to a station environment because that's where you're just going to get that support. And when you're young, I mean, you want to have mates and everything. You don't want to be out on some farm on your own or you know, just with the manager, or whatever. I mean, don't get me wrong; it could be it, you could have friends in the area, or whatever. I mean, don't don't take what I'm saying for granted. But if you can find a um, uh, if you can find a station environment, um, that would be very good. But absolutely, just a lot a lot of guys out there nowadays are, are happy to take on someone with no no um, prior experience. So, um, yeah for sure it's it's definitely possible what about the dog thing brad so did you just teach yourself how to handle dogs or because i know a lot of stations would prefer people have their own dogs talk us through your experience with your dogs yeah so i've just brought my i think i can just hear a howling now actually um my first um heading dog i bought uh off a mate and she was fully broken and everything and she's um was about three or something um so she's older now but um yeah just just find yourself a good probably well you I mean really you're going to need it definitely need a heading dog and a hunt away but make sure you find yourself a good heading dog because they're the ones that are going to get you out of trouble um and if you can just if, if you can afford it because you know they're quite expensive but just just buy something decent to begin with um yeah i mean i, I mean unless you're off i, I know in a semi-rural situation or you've no people and you can grab a dog off someone or, but if you're just, you know, not, not really any rural exposure or farm exposure, just try and buy yourself a heading, jo join one of the um, Facebook pages or something and just try and find yourself a reliable heading dog. Um, you can get, a, you can get away a bit more with a hunt away. That's a bit unruly, but you really want to be able to fix your problems with a heading dog. <laughs> so yeah so i just did that and then um just went from there and just yeah buddy now i've got eight of them so yeah <laughs> and i'm just thinking back to your your beginning of your sort of um education career and and your time with your grandfather um growing vegetables and how we asked the question about your train of thought about looking at preventative measures as opposed to ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And it's just occurred to me that likely a lot of that is because of your urban upbringing. You know, you didn't have, can you imagine, and we, I'm sure you've met people who have this, you know, if you've been brought up on a farm in a, you know, we use the word conventional, whatever, it's, you've got to unlearn before you can start asking questions. You yeah. didn't have that burden. No, yeah, that's that, that. Well, yeah, that's you're exactly right. I mean, I, I just had the the ability to see both sides, really. I guess, yeah, there was, um, yeah, I that I was actually going to say um, at the end of what I was saying before about getting into farming. I actually, look, you might disagree with me, or a lot of people might disagree with me, but I actually don't think it's the worst idea to start on a relatively conventional property if you've got an open mind. Because, as I said before, I mean, the entire industry has been built about around that way of farming. So it probably, I think it was a very 
good thing for me to learn what everyone, what most people are doing and what everyone's talking about and what, yeah, whatever, all of how everything's been done for the past 50 years or 100 years or whatever, and then look at it and go, how can we improve this? Yeah, I think that's, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not take a job on a conventional farm, so to speak, um, put it that way. Yeah. Oh, 100%, Brad, you said it so well. Uh, and then it also gives you the ability to communicate about if you've been through a transition yourself, if you've started in, in a manner where you've faced some challenges and then you've overcome them, it sort of gives you the ability to relate to others. Because if you're someone, you know, like, and that's why people, I think, use the term like hippie or something, they assume you've not done the, you know, the, the hard yards or the conventional work or, you know, like I look at myself, I was a spraying contractor and an agronomist for a lot of my career. You know, I look at my my soon-to-be wife, Ruby. She's been managing a, a very intensive uh, conventional farm for the last seven years. And I think it's powerful to have that beginning, you, 100%. And I've never voiced that. I've, I've never sort of... It, it takes away this polarisation that a lot of people have around a subject because they're in a silo. You know, they're in an echo chamber. Yeah. But you've got this perspective where it's like you've done that work on that farm, you've seen it done, you've done it yourself, you've had the questions from doing that yourself, and then you've able to go and search for solutions, which you've done. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, not I mean, it may not matter to a lot of people what other people think, but um, at least then that way, you know, you might actually. <laughs> Again, it doesn't matter what other people think, but you might earn their respect of the conventional farmer. And you know, if you're if you're wanting to help other people or that kind of thing, I mean, that's the way you can do it. I've done it this way, and now I'm doing it this way, kind of thing. Yeah. Brad, would you say? Because like I've spent a bit of time with you. You're a passionate dude. Your your energy's infectious. Is that something that you can attribute to your? Uh, I would say very fast paced journey, like as far as opportunities and to be where you are today, you know, would you actually say that it is important to be enthusiastic and passionate and interested in what you're doing? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, yeah, no, definitely hundred um, percent. I just, for some, I, I probably can't I don't know really how to put it down to anything but for some reason I've just for a long time it's just excited me everything about the primary industry you know what I mean like reading what some people might think is boring you know like I just it just excited me I think I think it's the it's almost like you know I don't know if you know but a few years ago there a lot of people were playing like some stupid bloody facebook game called like farmville or something and like that's what farming's like it's like you're just sort of like playing this game that you can just you know tweak things here and there and try different things and then at the at the end result is you know can be just the best feeling in the world can't it i mean seeing fat healthy happy stock is just you, you can't there's nothing better really <laughs> <laughs> and yes i do remember farmville yeah. and i never played it and i'm like what are you guys doing i, I do this for a living yeah, yeah. Real life. 
I always I found that quite interesting that a lot of urban people played that, eh? Yeah. I think everyone, like you as a kid with your grandfather, I think everyone underneath it all is fascinated with growing food. And oh. I would also add to that that I don't believe you said you didn't have your grandparents or your grandfather didn't um he wasn't using language like organics or anything, but he, he grew things what from what you said pretty naturally. I had the opposite. My grandparents did grow all their own vegetables and did very well for themselves in their quarter acre section. And I also remember going into a shed where I wasn't actually allowed because of all of the poisons and chemicals. And and I don't think there's many people who are actually okay with putting poison on food, yeah. but we don't voice it or we don't acknowledge it or because it's the status quo we don't want to rock the boat or something and 95 percent of people don't actually see that happening anyway they just see the end result a perfect 100%. piece of a person perfect piece of whatever in the supermarket so yeah um yeah there's just there's a lot at the moment a lot of um yeah people like people just sort of i mean i'm not trying to talk bad about people but they do just think food comes from the supermarket you know um, there's just not a lot of thought and they're busy they might not want to put that thought into where it comes from but yeah not a lot of thought comes from um yeah where not a lot of thought goes into where it's come from yeah 100 and there's no one's fault it's just no I mean, it's not it, it yeah. suits it suits the system the system's based around commodity and products not necessarily food it's like um you know i know a lot of kids that truly believe that food comes from the supermarket and that <laughs> and that farming's just some kind of idyllic you know thing you read in a book of a guy with a pitchfork and a red tractor <laughs> and a and yes i'll stop years ago some <laughs> archaic practice yeah 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 and and i would actually flip that and say actually a lot of farmers forget that they're producing food yeah what and, what they're actually doing like yeah. what the service that they're doing for the because that's the only there's only one thing that everyone on the planet has to do and that's eat you know yeah 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 and breathe and you're and supporting oh, both yeah. <laughs> yeah. and drink water and you're supporting that too like this yeah. is the thing man like it's worth getting excited about isn't it because it's oh. you're doing all of that stuff every day yeah yeah for sure no it's a, there's yeah there's nothing else i'd rather be doing and i and i i've sort of unfortunately you know you don't you know you don't earn a whole whole lot when you're especially when you're sort of working for someone else or whatever but you know i've tried a few times well not tried but i thought oh do i just go away for a few years and maybe work for do something else to earn a little bit more money you know but i just can't you just you can't get you can't get away from it you know it's just the, the feeling of producing food and the lifestyle and everything's just too good you know yeah money's just a bonus eh? <laughs> exactly <laughs> Brad, is, it, is it challenging um in in a social setting for you talking about what you know you mentioned you sort of have a few conversations and i know you're the sort of guy that doesn't really care what people think yeah but um what is it like when you're off the farm and you're going to you know social gatherings um how do you find it um oh no i mean again like um yeah i, I don't really know how to explain what i'm like i'm like a um I, i'm not in down you know shoving stuff down people's throats or anything like that i'm just willing to have the conversation with people and just you know talk about maybe like 
what what we you know oh, have you tried this we could do this you know yeah um, um yeah it's, it's it's never been an issue really put it that way yeah and i would say that's because of that delivery of of it do of, of delivering it in a question yeah not not yeah. like you should or no. you need to it's like oh have you tried th- this this yeah and, yeah exactly and then you come in with, oh, we've tried this and, and this is what I've learned. Like exactly what you've done in this podcast for the people listening to this, that, you know, you've inspired them. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully someone. Because they, they <laughs> what, dude, like <clears throat> think about all the people in New Zealand agriculture that aren't present to what they're doing and that really need this inspiration. Yeah. You yeah. know, like think of those guys and, and you know, what would it look like to have an agricultural system or, or I don't like to say industry. I've, something about industry makes me feel like, ugh, like it's factory. But if, imagine the whole of New Zealand agriculture fizzed about what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, because you're not, you're not getting it easy at the moment. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in how cool it would be to just drive past and just see all these like random things happening like all these people trying these random new things i mean that's oh. the only way you improve eh? um yeah but again i think a lot of it would go back to um you know they're a slave to the bank probably you know you've got to got to do this this way run this amount of stock um put this amount of fur on you know especially the people that are you know have a higher debt loading um which is you know i feel for them really um, well, especially well, especially if you're someone that is in that situation that wants to try new things but feels like they can't. I mean, that would be a terrible situation to be in, wouldn't it? Oh my God, man! You pointed something out here that I've never thought about. You talked about farming as a game, and you mentioned Farmville, yeah. which I laughed at. And then I thought about Farming Simulator and all these other things that kids <laughs> do when they could just be out on farm. But playing the game of farming, how many people are being played by the game farming? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're just switching from a pawn to a <laughs> what's the what's the powerful ones? I don't know, but you're the one moving the pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of. It, I mean, just think of the, the. As I was saying before, think of the primary service industry. I mean, that is just a massive industry. You know the amount of money made in that is just unbelievable so unfortunately uh, i'd say a lot of people are just controlled by them and i have found too that um a lot of these consultants in that they use they make they make you feel bad when you when you um you know bring up a new idea or talk about doing something or they it's a it's a technique for them. It's a tactic. Rubbish, you know. Rubbish anything that's not, um, yeah, from one of the big guys or the conventional way. Our final question, uh, yep. which is it's relevant to this part of the discussion, and it's what is what is it that you would say to someone who's just starting their journey into whether it be farming, maybe there's someone who's at school and they want to go farming, or maybe it's that someone's already been farming and they want to start doing things differently, or maybe even it's as speaking to yourself way back then. What would you have to say to that person after going through what you've been through? Um, well, 
speaking to someone starting out, I'd probably say, like I was saying before, don't be afraid to just, you know, try and find yourself a really good job on a normal farm. I mean, yeah, it's, it's strange using words like normal and conventional and stuff, but I mean, you know, find yourself, it doesn't matter what they do, so to speak, so long as they're good people and, you know, from what you can see, it's a relatively good, tidy farm and operation. Um, if you're young, yeah, try and go for one of those sort of um, station situations or quarters life would be good for your first few years, I'd say. Um, if it's someone older that wants to change, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there is, there's more and more people every year that are owners that are wanting to try new things. So I guess it would just be looking for that right fit. Um, I know that's probably not that helpful, but it would just be I, what I sort of had to do. I just found the right fit, so to speak. Um, there will be people out there. And put yourself out there, Brad, like you, to be seen, to be selected, you know, to be, to have your hand up, you know, yeah. I'm here. And I did, when I first applied for the job, I did completely, um, you know, undersell myself or whatever the word is. I, you know, I said, uh, this this role is probably not for me in my initial letter. Um, I probably don't have the experience, but um, but if something does come up for a, you know, slightly, you know, senior shepherd or stock manager's role, let me know kind of thing. Um, and then I went, so I sent that and then I went away for a few days and then went back and said, oh, no, actually, I think I'll apply for this manager's job. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was quite fun. Willingness, mate, willingness. Yeah, I should never have sent that original one doubting myself. Yeah. 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 Definitely, yeah. man. And what about what about to someone um, that's, you know, just getting curious about soil health or getting curious about biology or starting to ask those questions that you were asking? Yeah. I mean, there's just, there is so much out there nowadays. Just all of my knowledge has come from, you know, the likes of the different things that you offer. Um, and then, you know, obviously American literature and podcasts and there's so much there to read, just read. It's all you can do really. And then just when you get into a situation where you can implement, just try new things. And, you know, it doesn't have to be all in. Like, you know, as I said to you, I've done 70 hectares of conventional kale this year. Um, just try is all, all, all I can say. <laughs> Have a play of the game called farming. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Brad, thank you so much for your time today, mate. Uh, I no look forward to coming out and having a look because, you know, I've been talking about that for a wee while now. And, and now that I'm back farming, I really look forward to, if you're ever in, in the in the Waitaki Valley, mate, that you, that you call in and I'll, I'll give you a tour of our place. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to it.